This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson at plantyourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a creative and confident life. My passion and mission in the plant-based space have evolved over the years. I used to be really into research and scientific fact and study design, and now I'm almost entirely consumed by the question of how do we help people get this into their lives? How do we help people make giant shifts, big changes to get healthier, happier, more connected, and more fulfilled in their lives so they can be better for others? And a lot of the time in this field, I feel like we're playing defense. We're trying to fight off bad habits. We're trying to overcome things. We're trying to move away from some sort of you know, lazy, disengaged default or move away from some uncompromising feature of our society, of our culture, of our environment, of our surroundings. And we're basically looking at problems and trying to solve problems, which is why I love having people on my podcast and talking to people who come from a completely different perspective, that of design. Because designers, their mission is to look at problems and solve them. And they do it in a very positive way, as opposed to trying to avoid things or run away from things. They look at every problem, every situation, every difficulty as an opportunity to innovate, to be creative, to come up with something new. So I've had on the podcast Bernie Roth, a professor at the Stanford D School, the design school, who wrote a book called The Achievement Habit. I've had uh, Bill Burnett and Dave Evans on the podcast pretty recently, talking about their book, Designing Your Life. And today, we've got the trifecta, uh, also from Stanford, is Dr. Tina Selig, who's written a bunch of books, including Insight Out, Ingenious, and What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. Her latest book, Creativity Rules, is about how to be creative as we try to innovate and to design new solutions to our lives. And specifically, the game that I asked Dr. Selig to play with me on the podcast was how do we apply the concepts in her book, Creativity Rules, and apply them to living a healthy life, to eating right, to working out, dealing with social pressure, that sort of thing. And Dr. Selig graciously agreed to play along, and we went back and forth between looking at the concepts that she teaches from an entrepreneurial standpoint to a design your life and choose the path that's great for you standpoint to specifically around solving problems related to changing our lifestyle so that we can be more happy, healthy, and fulfilled. I hope you find the conversation valuable. If you do, I encourage you to go out and buy her book, Creativity Rules, or any of her other ones. It's always a nice thing for me to be able to tell my guests that if they come on the show, that it might increase their book sales. That helps me be more persuasive when I'm talking to authors that I'd like to speak to about their work. Before we get to the interview, a quick notice about the Big Change Program. It's going to start in about a week and a half. It's a three-month intensive program online with live group coaching via video, with a forum, with daily videos, with interaction with the group, and it's led by me and Josh Lajani. Josh has been very busy lately. If you haven't caught him uh, on the Today Show earlier this month, you might have caught him on Good Morning America earlier or on the cover of Runner's World. He is an example of what is possible when we make a decision, make a commitment, get the help we need, and commit 
to changing our mindsets, changing our menus, changing our movement habits. If you're not familiar with his story, Josh is a former 420-pound, hard-drinking, hard-eating ex-high school football player from the Bayou of Louisiana who's now a competitive ultramarathoner. But he's not a professional health educator. He's just been doing his thing, waking up early in the morning to train so he can run his two businesses. He owns and manages a trailer park, and he runs a private sewer company. A lot of the time when I call him or text him, he's in the middle of pulling some nasty stuff out of a drain or a pump motor. And in spite of this grueling schedule, he's become an informal mentor to thousands of people on social media. And I couldn't believe how much time he spends responding to Instagram comments and Facebook private messages from people who are inspired by his story and want a little of his success to rub off on them. And now, thanks to his generosity of spirit and his fierce wisdom and my experience with online education and behavioral psychology, we are taking it to the streets with the Big Change Program. This will be our fourth cohort, and we're inviting people to join us on this journey to overcome their behavioral challenges, to get to your ideal weight, and become the lean, healthy athlete that we're all capable of becoming. We'll be opening up the program for enrollment on Friday. That's the 19th of January, 2018. And until then, you can get on the notification list so that you can sign up as soon as we open the doors by going to bigchangeprogram.com. And you can read all about it, and you can sign up for the free test drive. And when you sign up for the test drive, you will automatically get onto the early notification list to sign up if it's your thing. All right, so if there's some big change that you'd like to make in your life and creativity can play a part in helping it come true, then you'll be delighted by the interview that you're about to hear. So without further ado, Dr. Tina Selig, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. So I've been, I've been binging on, on your stuff from the book, Creativity Rules, get, your, get Ideas Out of Your Head and Into the World, to, to some of your TED Talks, to your, your appearance on Dan Pink's Pinkcast. And first of all, I just wanted to talk to you because I love the topic that you're interested in, of cre- creativity and how we can all foster it. But I kind of got stuck a little bit because I was trying to figure out how to apply this to the, you know, the basic topic of the podcast, which is how to help people live healthier, happier lives. And then I realized, well, that's exactly the kind of creative problem that you teach people how to solve in, in your work. So that's, that's why we're having this conversation. I wonder if you could start by just sort of introducing yourself and, and you know, your path and what you do and, and give us some, some insight into who you are. Great. Thank you for asking. Uh, I'm really delighted that you see the connection because essentially my passion is helping people see and seize opportunities. And of course, that can happen in the business world, but it certainly can happen in your everyday life in everything you you hope to achieve. And uh, my background is a little bit um, unusual. I actually have my PhD in neurophysiology from Stanford Med School. And then I went out into the business world where I uh, worked in different uh, tech companies and uh, consulting, did a whole bunch of different things. And then I, when I actually started a family, I decided writing my first books. And the first book I wrote was actually on the chemistry of cooking. Um, I don't know if you know that. I've written two books on the chemistry of cooking. I was uh, fascinated by the fact that I knew in great depth what was happening in my lab, but not in my own kitchen. <laughs> and so uh, I wrote those books to, basically because at that point in time, I couldn't find the answers to the questions I was looking for. 
And so uh, after that, I ended up uh, starting my first company. And uh, then when I saw an opportunity to come and work at Stanford to help to build the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, which is the Entrepreneurship Center in the School of Engineering, I jumped at the chance. It was an opportunity to help young people uh, really understand how to build the lives they dream to live. So um, you have a background that, that has already shown there's a lot of creativity in how you were thinking about it. Now you, you wrote in the book about the your your first gig at the uh, Stanford uh, Tech Venture Center was not what you ended up doing. You had to kind of invent it as you went along. Do you feel like you were sort of a natural creative, that you sort of intuited these processes that you would later codify and and write about and teach? Or did you kind of stumble through your own ex- exploration of being a creative person? It's a really good question. Obviously, I can't be other people, and so I don't know how other people think differently than I do, but my my observations is that we all have very different natural talents, whether it's, you know, in sports or math or music. Um, I, I am very interested in creativity, and of course, the more interested you are, the more time you put into it, and the better you get. And so um, I think that my passions have led to my skills because it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about and practicing. And I think that's true for lots of people. Uh, they, um, one of the things I mentioned in the book, and I think you, you maybe, I hope maybe you did the exercise, is this two-by-two two matrix, which is so attitude and uh, sort of your passions and your confidence. And you put the different things in your life into these different pockets, right? Things you're passionate about and confident, the things you're highly passionate and not confident, the things you're confident but not passionate, etc. And uh, what you realize after you do this, and it's, it's harder than you think to put the things in your life in these buckets, is that you really control where they are, right? Because you control your attitude and you control your behavior. And so for me, creativity and teaching and all the things I do are things I'm really passionate about, but as a result, I do them. So I, that's sort of a long answer, but um, I think these are skills that anybody can get better at. Great. And I guess you know, one, of the, one of the first things that struck me about the book is you, is you write at the very beginning a sentence that sort of you know, smacked, smacked the reader right between the eyes. It says, it's a crime not to teach people to be entrepreneurial. And I don't think you were meaning that everyone needs to be Richard Branson or, or Jeff Bezos. What do you mean by that? And, and, and why do all of us need to be entrepreneurial? And what does it mean to be entrepreneurial? Great. Uh, so if you came into our offices, our suite of offices at the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, you'd see a big sign painted on the wall that says, entrepreneurs do much more than imaginable with much less than seems possible. And that's how I define entrepreneurship. It's about those people who see problems as opportunities, leverage limited resources, make things happen. And this is just as relevant for somebody who's trying to plan a trip around the world as somebody who's trying to, you know, start a multinational company. And one of the things that a colleague of mine uh, said many years ago, and it's really stuck in my mind, is that teaching entrepreneurship is essentially a Trojan horse for teaching really important life skills that are relevant no matter what you do. Hmm. So, if, so if someone is thinking, well, I'm not entrepreneurial, um, you, you, you go into the, the idea there's an entrepreneurial mindset. 
Right, and it, so- it sounds like that before you had codified these skills for yourself, that that was sort of the driver, that if you have this entrepreneurial mindset, then you, st- you just act in a way that you start uncovering opportunities and uh, you know, ab- the, uh, the ability to, to make something of them. Can you talk about what the entrepreneurial mindset is right. and, so and how, it- how we can get it? Great. So that's actually the focus of, of creativity rules is really um, parsing what is going on in someone who is entrepreneurial. And I create this framework, which I call the invention cycle, which takes you through the process from imagination to creativity to innovation to entrepreneurship. And the definitions are pretty straightforward. Um, this also, though, takes a lot of practice. So if imagination is envisioning things that don't exist, well, that's something we do very naturally. That's easy. Babies do this. Um, we wouldn't be able to make it through our day if we couldn't envision things that don't exist, right? We, you know, if I'm packing for a trip, I need to envision what the weather is going to be like, so I pack appropriately, right? I don't put a bathing suit in if I'm going to Chicago in the, in the winter, things like that. I have to envision that. Creativity is applying your imagination to address a challenge. And so you're applying your ability to envision things that don't exist to solve a problem. And it could be a simple problem as I'm hungry and I open up the refrigerator and I envision a peanut butter sandwich, right? It doesn't exist yet, but I can look at the ingredients and go, ah, I can envision a peanut butter sandwich with what's, what's in this refrigerator. And then innovation is applying the creativity to come up with a unique solution. And this is what's really important, the distinction between creativity and innovation. Creative ideas are new to you. Innovative ideas are new to the world. And so often we settle for creative ideas when really we should be pushing further to get to the innovative ideas. And then entrepreneurship is applying the innovation to scale the ideas and bring them to the world. And I call it a cycle because the end leads back to the beginning. In order to be entrepreneurial, you need to inspire other people's imagination. And this process can be learned, it can be practiced, it can be mastered. And this is how people become more entrepreneurial. Great. So let's, let's focus on the first two. I, I, my gut is that those are the ones that are going to be most relevant to people who are just trying to make changes in their own lives. That maybe you know, they're, they're stuck and they can't figure out you know, I keep wanting to go on this diet or start this exercise program or stop smoking or start meditating, and I failed so many times in the past that I'm just stuck. I just, I can't imagine it. So let's, let's take the person opening up the fridge and imagine, envisioning their peanut butter sandwich, and the problem is that that's all they can envision. And so that's what they eat, even though, you know, it's fattening, it's processed. How do you help someone envision something different if they if they if they're in an imaginative okay so let's rut. let's go through that and i haven't done this exercise with you so i'm going to do this on the fly okay? okay cool so let's see let's see how it works so let's say my goal is to um lose weight one of the things i would do at first is saying am i asking the right question right because maybe i want to be healthier maybe i want to fit into my skinny jeans. I mean, what, you know, maybe there's a different question I should be, um, um, you know, that I should be asking. But one of the things that's important is to sort of, right, engage in the world, and I then envision what might be different. Like, wow, what would it look like if I am, um, if I lost some weight? And then you move on to the next stage, to creativity, where you go, okay, I'm really motivated to do this, so let me do some experiments, right? So, Imagination requires engaging the world, envisioning what might be different. 
the next stage, you're actually motivated enough to do something and you start some experiments. Maybe that experiment is, I'm going to put different things in the refrigerator. Maybe I put a lock on the refrigerator. Maybe I uh, engage a friend to help me do this. Whatever these little experiments are. Then you move on to the innovative innovation stage where you start actually reframing the problem. Because maybe the problem isn't, as I said before, maybe the problem isn't losing weight. Maybe it's really being healthier. Maybe it's really getting more exercise. You know, there might be different ways to look at it that allow me to get to my goal um, without assuming that losing weight is, is actually the problem. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of people get stuck on certainly weight um, as, you know, as, as the as you said, is this the first, the simplest metric, right? That, uh, you know, we'll come up with a solution and then we get lazy. Yes. Um, and in fact, this is super important because in my classes, I give uh, the students the challenge. They have to come up with at least a hundred solutions. First they have to, so let's imagine that the problem was um, losing weight. Then they would have to essentially frame storm and come up with dozens of questions around losing weight because the idea is that you might be asking the wrong question. So, and we talked about before the different types of questions you might want to ask. And then they have to come up with for each of these questions at least 100 solutions. And the idea is that, you know, the first solutions you come up with are going to be incremental. They're going to be expected. You know, if I asked you to come up with 500 flavors of ice cream, the first 100 would be expected. They'd be ones we'd all seen before then you're going to start getting really interesting ideas. So, so part of that is just a, a willingness to believe that you have unplumbed depths, that there is something yes. in there. Yes, exactly, and, and pushing further. And I think that's where most people fall into a trap of coming up with the first right answer. You know, but the problem is our education system is tuned to make us do that, right? We take multiple choice tests with one right answer. And so we're used to answering problems like what's the sum of 5 plus 5, where the answer is 10, and we all agree on that. But in the real world, that's just not the case. We're given problems that are how do you get to 10, right? So how many solutions are there to how do you get to 10? What two numbers add up to 10? Well, there are an infinite number of solutions, negative numbers, fractions, decimals. So the, the fact is, we, in our real life, we're given these open-ended problems, but we're not prepared, we're not trained, we're not taught to solve problems that way. Right. And I love in one of your TED Talks, you talk about, you know, the, the last page of The New Yorker it has the, the cartoon caption. And, yes. you know, I realize how much I love doing that and how much I dislike doing crossword puzzles where there's a convergent single right answer. Exactly. A, I always think the world, I, I think it's not true, actually, but I, I like to think of the world as those people who like to do crossword puzzles versus playing Scrabble. You know, I love playing Scrabble because there are an endless number of opportunities, whereas, you know, crossword puzzle, there's one right answer and someone else's figure, you know, you have to get into someone else's brain. Well, you know, I'd rather get into my own brain and see what interesting you know, things I come up with. But I know some people, you know, love the process of doing crossword puzzles. I think it's just a very different type of thinking. Right. Well, in a, in a way, the the convergent thinking where there's one right answer, it's kind of a way to relax almost. It's like you, the, the pressure's off. You don't oh. have to perform. Where there's, there's something more exhilarating about, you know, doing improv or stand-up or 
or so, well, I don't something. Know. You know, it's an interesting point because, right, if I can, improv's one thing, but I could put, you know, do a Shakespeare play and that might be just as exhilarating. To, so, you know, where it's already the words are on the page. I, I think it just, um, different parts of our life require different types of um, thinking and to be able to be ambidextrous is really important. I mean, there's sometimes mm. I might follow a recipe for a, for, you know, a cake because I, want to f- reproduce what someone else did and other times I might want to come up with my own recipe. Sure. So the, the, the one of the uh, mindsets you talk about is seeing the world as opportunity rich. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm guilty of this as a teacher in that I'm, you know, I'm trying to explain to people like why they're unhealthy, why they're overweight, why they have no energy. And I point to things like, you know, billboards, supermarkets, the 50,000 SKUs in a supermarket that are all designed to make you addicted. And I point out like the, the environment is sort of threat rich. And how, how can I and other people start seeing the, the world as opportunity rich, even when it comes to ways of you know, breaking free of our own uh, unwanted behaviors and habits. Right. So there are lots of ways to do this. And it's, it takes effort because so much of what we do is very routine and we repeat the same thing every single day. You know, there are little things you can do. Drive to work a new way. Um, switch up where you have lunch. Uh, spend time with some people who you haven't seen in a long time. Um, and, of course, you know, maybe go on a vacation, take a trip somewhere you haven't been. All of these things force you to pay attention. I mean, how many times have you driven home from work and you get home and you go, wow, I don't even know how I got here. I just wasn't even paying attention. And, you know, my mind was on something else. But experiences that required you to pay attention, I'm a huge believer that uh, traveling makes you live longer. Now, why is that? Because the time you're traveling feels like it just but that week of being in some unique place feels like you've been gone so much longer when you come back and everyone is still in the same place. They've been doing I, the same I, thing. Yeah. I remember reading, I can't remember where, it was pretty recently about a study about the, a there and back trip to a place you hadn't been before, that the back, when you come home, it feels shorter. Uh, yes, I think so, right? Because when you go, you know, each bump in the road, each experience is new. On the way back, you've expected it, and it's like, okay, great, I've, I've seen that before. Mm-hmm. So, so actually putting, putting yourself in the path of, of the new, the unexpected, the different, to just kind of shake up routine can, can, can be helpful. Absolutely, and that's, you know, it's a pretty easy thing to do. Um, if you put your mind to it, and it really does start getting you in the mindset of breaking out of routines and looking at things differently. Right. And as I think about it, you know, one, one of the, the messages that I teach people about being healthy is like look towards our ancestral environment. And whatever we, whatever we did then is probably a pretty good bet that we're designed for it. And how much routine would you have on the savanna or on the steps where you're in a, you know, a a constantly dynamically changing environment versus what we've created for ourselves with, you know, those, those pictures that you have in your Ted talk of the cubicles and the, and the classrooms with all the chairs and rows bolted to the ground. That, that right. Routine is probably not a very natural thing for humans. Well, it's interesting. You can, you know, you can do this in lots of different ways. Um, you know, one of those traditional exercises in creativity is, you know, give someone a, a simple object like a paper clip or, a water bottle and say, how many uses can you come up with for this? Um, I do some sort of variations on this in my classes. And, uh, 
where people have to take an everyday object and create as much value as possible starting with that object. So it's not just making a list of of what things you can do, but you actually have to do something. And, you know, give people a handful of paper clips. And honestly, you can come up with a myriad set of really interesting things that you can do with them. But ever, And the reason I would give a mundane object like that is because, guess what? We have paper clips around us all the time. And then it becomes a reminder that, oh, yeah, you know, this paper clip isn't just a paper clip. Let me look at everything else on my desk in a new and fresh way. Mm. And that's, I guess that's like, when I think of someone who does that, I would think of you know, an artist. I would think of you know, Gaudi or uh, or Picasso or some, you know someone who sees these possibilities. But you're saying that that all of us can train this sort of artistic sense. We can be the artists of our own lives. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So another so, another one. Yeah, go ahead. Oh no no no! I'm please. Okay. Well, so another one of the assumptions, the uh, the mindsets, and I, I love this one. It really feels important to me is to challenge assumptions. And you write that most rules are recommendations. So say a little bit about that, and then we'll see if we can apply it to right. To health, so health I, one of my favorite um, exercises that I do with my students has to do with challenging assumptions, and it's a it's an exercise that I even do just if I'm having, you know a bored moment on an airplane, I will sit down and pull out a piece of paper and do this because we have so many assumptions baked into how things work. So let's say, uh, what are all the assumptions of a fast food restaurant? Or what are all the assumptions around, you know, airline travel? What are all the assumptions around um, Mm. being in school? And if you unpack your assumptions and really dig down, there are all sorts of assumptions that we just take for granted. But then if you turn them upside down, and look at what the opposite of those would be and start thinking about what would happen if you applied some of the opposites to our assumptions. And you can end up coming up with some very, very interesting new approaches to solving a problem um, or addressing a market if you end up looking at the opposite. And, and a perfect example that, that often gets used when talking about this is Cirque du Soleil. Right? In the 1980s, the circus industry was dying. And, you know, nobody would have thought to invest in a new circus. But Cirque du Soleil sort of unpacked all the assumptions about what a circus is, turned them upside down. Now, they kept some of the things to make it a circus, right? A tent and clowns and entertainment. But they challenged so many assumptions that they were able to reinvent the circus. Now, of course, the traditional circus, like Barnum & Bailey's, has gone out of business, and Cirque du Soleil has taken off. And this type of challenging assumptions is a great way to reinvent, especially um, industries and patterns that aren't working well. Right. And that one felt particularly relevant to me because, you know, I, I, my business is I teach, coach, train, guide people to get healthier. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, I, I come into this with all these assumptions like, okay, I'm the coach, mm-hmm. which means I have to tell them what to do. Like, what if we switch that around? What if they had to tell me what to do? Right, just just start just off the top of my head, thinking that there's there's, like we really don't know exactly the best way to get people to be healthy, but we, I can see all the embedded assumptions that I've never questioned, that I've taken from school or from the doctor's office or from business coaching, and you know it, it feels it feels very exhilarating to think that in my head at least I can challenge all these and, and, and most of them are going to be like that, that picture of like the Japanese shoes with the uh, little umbrellas on them, you know, <laughs> sort of yeah. cute but not particularly useful. 
but can point to, to true innovation. Yes, and, and so often we just get into ruts when something, if we look at it a little bit differently, is going to open up the door to some really new opportunities. So what are, what are some of the assumptions we can think of around like the way people um, you know, try to change their health behaviors? It's like, like, like New Year's resolutions. Right. So like, yeah, so it's an interesting question. I obviously haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this, but what are the assumptions around New Year's resolutions? I mean, there are assumptions that I make them publicly. Uh, there are assumptions that um, they're very big, right? Usually people make an, uh, a New Year's resolution for something that's very big and bold as opposed to something incremental. Um, what other assumptions? There are assumptions right. that um, um, it's going to make you better. There's the assumption that uh, you do it at the very beginning of the year. So you could take all these and turn them around. Maybe I make a resolution every week as opposed to once a year. Maybe I make tiny resolutions as opposed to big resolutions. Right. Maybe other people make resolutions for me. Can, Maybe. I exactly. Can have a, exactly. I can put exactly. up a, 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 right, a piece of software, and every, every week some, a different person makes a resolution, and I have to try to keep it for a while. And I, exactly. So, exactly. So by challenging the assumptions, you might come up with something that really works much better. I mean, if I make tiny resolutions once a week, that might be much more effective than making a big one at the beginning of the year. Right. Oh, I love that. We just started a business. <laughs> Go for it. Let me know how it goes. So, so one of the things that I see as a real challenge for people that I coach is that they constantly want enough information to feel comfortable before changing something. So, for example, you know, they want to start running, and they're going to spend three months reading the review of every running shoe and every running watch and every app. And you... I love the way you kind of obliterate this tendency with something that you call pre-typing. Can you talk about pre-typing right. and what it is? Yeah, so I, I love this concept. So uh, this is not my term. This is a term from my colleague, Alberto Savoya, who's just a wizard. He's wonderful. He's started several companies, uh, the first one of which was sold for $100 million. The second one tanked. And uh, they lost, you know, $35 million. And he said, what happened here? And he started realizing that you can build something right, but it might not be the right thing. And so came up with this concept of prototyping that is to do tiny, tiny early experiments. Now, it's before a prototype. A prototype test if something will work. A prototype test if you're working on the right thing. And so you can do the tiniest experiment. The idea is to get the shortest time to data as possible. And so, for example, let's say a restaurant wanted to try something new on their, on their menu. Well, instead, and just, you know, are curious, are people going to buy lobster Thermidor? You know, instead of buying lobster and making it and spending lots of money and time and you know, putting it in your test kitchen, just put it on the menu and see if people will buy it. And you can always say, oh, I'm sorry, we're out today. You know, we're, we're out of that. But you get a very quick data on whether people would buy it if you had it. And there are lots of ways to do this. There are false doors like that. There are Pinocchio approaches where, you know, you build something that, you know, my favorite example is um, 
um, the Palm Pilot. And Jeff Hawkins, who built the Palm Pilot, when he first did it, he knew he could make it. He didn't know if people would use it. So he made a block of wood with the same form factor of what he anticipated the Palm would be. And he carried around in his pocket for a few weeks. And he wanted to see, would he want to carry it? What type of things would he use it for? And at the end of that time, he said, you know what? I actually think this would be useful. And so... um, you know, you can do these tiny little experiments to see if you're going in the right direction. And the wonderful thing is, if it doesn't work out, you haven't really lost any time or money or resources because it's been a quick and dirty experiment. Right. Now, it seems like it's really important to, to when you do prototyping to ask the right question. So because if your question is, will this help me lose weight and you eat a salad, then obviously you're not going to get any sort of useful feedback. So what's the type of question that's useful to ask around prototyping? And what's the kind of question that's that's inappropriate? Like I'm sure Jeff Hawkins didn't walk around saying, gee, does this block of wood help me multiply numbers? Well, here's, here's the thing. You need to take some basic assumptions that you have and challenge them. So, um, his assumption that he was testing in the prototype, and this is a really good point. You pick one hypothesis to test, right? He said, would someone carry something this size around with them? That was a rate-limiting factor. If people weren't willing to put something of this size in their pocket and carry it around with them, I mean, you have to realize the Apple Newton had failed, right, which was bigger. If, if people aren't willing to carry this around, then everything else I do doesn't really matter. Um, with the, you know, putting something on the menu, I can make something that's totally delicious, but if no one's going to order it, it doesn't matter, so you need to pick some assumptions that you have that you can test. I mean, one of my examples I, I like to use in my classes that um, there's a Minority Report, the movie, um, and I actually haven't seen it, but I've just seen the trailers. And in the trailers, Tom Cruise is controlling these these computers by waving his arms, right? These monitors that are on the wall, and you're essentially waving your hands around, controlling all the things, all the information, all these monitors. Right. Mm -hmm. And well, there's just one assumption that you like. The first assumption is, would people want to be doing this? Do they want to have their hands in the air controlling this computer this way? So you can just ask people to put their hands in the air and wave them around the way you would. And you realize that within about 20 seconds, no one wants to do this. (laughs) Right. And so, (laughs) I mean, it gets a big laugh, but the point is there are some very basic assumptions in all the things we do. And, uh, you know, if you can challenge those assumptions or test those assumptions, that's really valuable because if you don't test them and you make that assumption and you go and spend billions of dollars developing some technology, millions of dollars, you know, and it fails, that's a much bigger failure than trying it with a block of wood. Right. In fact, I can think of an example that a lot of people want to start eating healthier, but then the holidays come around and they're expected to cook Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner. And their assumption is that they will be ostracized, cursed, hated for cooking a healthier meal. And or if they if they're at, you know, go out for lunch at work and they order the salad and everyone else is ordering the steak, that, that everyone's going to freak out or Do people think ostracize that? them. Is that, is that true? That people think that? Yeah. Oh, completely. People are so um, sort of encumbered by the assumptions, that first, first of all, that what they eat matters to other people, and that 
it should matter to other people. And, you know, it's the, the, the idea of the social pressure is really huge. Like I'm going to, especially because eating is such a sort of communal ritualistic act that if I'm going to eat something different. Interesting. So what you could do with Thanksgiving is you could send everyone advance. We're so delighted you're coming for Thanksgiving. Here's the menu we're going to be serving. Hmm. Hope you're as excited about it as I am. You know, so you can send it out and sort of see if anybody balks, right? It's like, oh, well, that sounds great. Right. Or, right. If you, or, or just, you know, go, go out with a, instead of with the whole team at work, go out with one or two colleagues that you're close with and order a salad and see if the world comes crashing down. Right. And, and so, right. So the idea right. is low, low risk and quick feedback. Yeah. And I think that you can get that data very, very, very fast and go, oh, that, that was working. And guess what? Maybe it wasn't working. And you say, all right, it's not working, and I'm going to um, practice bringing my lunch as opposed to going out and saying gotcha. I'm going to, you know, if that's not working, then we'll do something different. Let's do a different experiment. Right, and this idea of experimentation, because, no, you know, we're all, we're all different, and, you know, what worked for me may not work for you. And so if we, if we get, um, you know, too associated with a, a method or a product or a guru – and it's not a perfect fit, and we're not willing to, to pre-to-type. We're not willing to experiment and, and accept data rather than, you know, think of failure. Um, exactly. Well, this is really something hard. that I feel very strongly about, is that I do not like uh, the term failure very much. Um, when I'm a scientist by training. When you do an experiment and uh, it doesn't come out as you expected. You don't say my experiment failed. You go, wow, I got some really interesting data here. Uh, That's fascinating. And sometimes that failure leads to some of the biggest insights because um, something happened that you didn't expect. And so if we end up looking at our whole lives as a series of experiments and then mining it, in fact, I have my students write failure resumes and the idea is that failure is okay as long as you learn something from it. And you have to mine it. I mean, you can't just say, I'm, um, you know, I failed. You have to say, okay, I, this is what I did. This is what happened. And here's what I learned that I'm not going to do again. And honestly, from my experience, this has made me much more resilient doing this type of exercise. And I know my students have said the same thing because um, you don't feel as if you're um, – stuck in a pattern where you're going to continue to fail if you if you figure out a way that you're going to get out of the the pattern you didn't like so maybe you go to a holiday party and you ate too many desserts and you put that on your failure resume you go okay here's what happened i went to the holiday party i ate more desserts not only am i mad at myself but i don't feel very well okay what am i going to do differently and then you come up with a plan you say okay at the next holiday party i'm going to you know this is what i'm going to do I'm going to fill my plate with carrots and one brownie. I, I love that. That's sort of the, the central engine of the process that I teach people is as long as you know, you're constantly doing what, what, uh, what I learned from a friend, Peter Bregman, called the fast assessment. What was I feeling? How was I acting? What was I saying? What was I thinking? And what am I going to learn for next time? Yes, and uh, I think one of the things that's interesting about dieting, and and I'm not a huge expert on this at all, but in any experiences I've had with that is that there's a 
feeling of scarcity that somehow, you know, that, that item, that chocolate truffle, oh my gosh, I need to have more because, you know, there won't be any more. But if you start realizing that you're living in a world of abundance as opposed to scarcity, it relieves the pressure. You know what? There'll be another chocolate truffle in my future. I don't need to have three. Right. And and it's it's one of the things that I teach just in general is the idea that we need to move from a mindset of scarcity to a mindset of abundance, which allows us to say no to things. Yes, that's that's so crucial. Um, so I know you you got to get back to your work. I said one one more question because you talked sure. about the end of you know your, what what I did, what happened, what I learned, and then what am I going to do differently next time? Which is a form of visualization. You have you write some really interesting things about visualization that works and doesn't work, and I was really surprised by the finding that visualizing a positive outcome alone can backfire. Can you talk just briefly about that and what kind of visualization of the future works? Right. There's some studies that have shown that just visualizing, you know, yourself in your bikini, you know, doesn't work or yourself at the end of the finish line at the marathon. You actually have to visualize the entire process of getting there. You know, you need to visualize how much work it's going to be and the training process and you know, the recovery process, you have to visualize the entire process. If you just visualize the end goal, uh, it ends up being not very effective. And because this is hard work, right? It's not as though it's easy. And so if you just visualize the end, you will get demoralized because, you know, as soon as you hit a hurdle, you're going to give up. All of this, you know, designing and creating the life you dream to live is 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 an effort. But of course, we both know it's so rewarding. Um, I'm a huge believer that if you do 1% better each day, it's not, it's not 100% better, it's 1% better. So if you think about it, if your life is, if your job, let's imagine your job is to do some, some task, and we call that 1.0. Well, 1.0 times 1.0, times 1.0, times 1.0, right, for 365 is 1.0, right? You've done exactly the same thing every day. But if you do 1% better, the compounding effect is amazing. So 1.01 times 1.01 times 1.01, I believe, at, to the 365 is 38. Hmm. So you are 38 times better at the end of the year than the person who didn't do anything differently. And so if you think about instead of doing just doing something big and bold, this is about making the New Year's resolutions, right? We'll go back to that. If you do, you know, make a resolution every day that I'm going to do 1% better in something, and the next day a little better, next day you're going to look back after a year and you're going to be blown away. You know, whether it's doing one more push-up, right, walking one more quarter mile, you know, eating one last bag of potato chips, whatever it is that, that you need to optimize for, um, you're going to be amazed. Right. And you're allowed to go backwards some days because if, you, you know, if, if the next day you're at 0.99 because you did something wrong the previous day, you, just, you don't repeat that mistake. You still you, you, you get, you get to um, you know, copyright your successes and, and trash your failures. I think that's great. And it, exactly. Is if, if, if you have a day off, it doesn't matter. You just keep pushing on and uh, give yourself a break. 
Well, I, I love this so much because it's, it's, I think it's so much the missing piece for a lot of people who become very motivated. They learn a lot. They become very earnest. And yet they're, if they happen to move in a direction that's not perfect, they'll just, you know, keep pushing against it like, you know, some sort of um, like early Roomba that didn't, that didn't recognize that the wall was the point to stop mm-hmm. and turn around. And that, you know, that what you're giving people is really a key to, to such a, a joyful and curious journey on the way to the goals. So I really appreciate the work you've done and the time you've taken to share it with us today. Well, thank you so much. It was really my pleasure and uh, wishing you a wonderful and uh, fabulous new year. Thank you, Tina. You, you too. Hey, you have any more new books coming out? Um, I'm supposed to be working on one right now, so please check back in the future. Okay. Um, how can people check back and find you? Um, I'm easy to find. I'm on Twitter at, at T Seelig, T S E E L I G. I've got a website, tinaseelig.com. And uh, I always love to get messages, and I always respond to all of them. I can attest to that. So, <laughs> Tina, thank you so much. Uh, folks, re- reach out, g- uh, get, uh, get, a, get a hold of Creativity Rules. And, uh, Tina, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you want to know how to do that, go to plantyourself.com slash review. For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 250. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 249 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And you can also sign up for my weekly-ish newsletter, also at plantyourself.com. Just give me a first name and an email address, and I'll send something out every time I have something worth sending. In garden news, we've uncovered all the beds. We're letting everything sort of freeze and die, and hopefully some of the pests that might be overwintering in there in their little protected environments are going to Uh, find it hard to come back and eat our food next year. And we're looking at getting the grow lights out indoors and starting a whole bunch of seeds so that when it warms up outside, we'll be ready to get aggressive about getting those uh, phytonutrient-rich powerhouses into the ground. In running news, I had a, a new first over the weekend. I ran a marathon that I was not trying to race. I wasn't trying to beat any time, just trying to go out and have a good run. And it was with part of the the Missing Chins group in the Louisiana Marathon in Baton Rouge. It was a really nice time. I was invited to be on a podcast, a live podcast in the Expo Hall uh, by Patrick Fellows, who is one of the co-founders and organizers of the race. And when that is published somewhere, I will point you towards it so you can listen. And I ran a kind of a fun uh, four-hour and 30-minute marathon. It was a little over a 10-minute pace. There was a lot of stopping, a lot of uh, high-fiving with, with uh, people cheering on the, on the route. It was cold as anything, but I wasn't complaining as bad as the people from Louisiana who are not used to such temperatures ever. I finished the race a little uh, before noon on Sunday, and it's now Tuesday, early afternoon, and I feel good. I don't have to walk upstairs backwards. Uh, I don't look like I'm 90 years old as I, as I walk across the house, and... So it was a really interesting experience, and uh, I think I encourage it to every once in a while just do a race for the fun and the camaraderie 
and the spectacle of it as opposed to uh, really pushing. My next race is the Tobacco Road Marathon. That was my first marathon ever, and so I'd like to PR and do better than I did last year. But after that, we'll see. And with that, let's bring up the music. And the music, of course, is Will Ridenauer's Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace, which he has so graciously allowed me to use as the theme music for this podcast. Find more at willridenauer.com. And thank you to all the generous, stalwart, loving, beautiful Plant Yourself podcast patrons, including... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, Mysterious Michelle Axel, with Felton, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Jody Zena, Rilla, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rangel Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gillis, Sarah David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona, these of Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderberg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z. Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holzman, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R. Susan Laverty, the Panda Beacon, Craig Covet, Adam Sharf, Karen Burry, Rhymes with Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Michia, Deanne Norton, Bronnie Brillinch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabine Kersels, Nigel Davis, Marion Bloom, Teresa Copel, Shell Ruthless, Julian Rodkins, Julian Watkins, sorry about that, Julian Breed, O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rosland, Ayat, Julie Langholm, Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lal, Heather O'Connor, <laughs> Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikowski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Mirani, and Karen and Joe Crabtree for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>